0: Well, we've had a a wonderful time on our Wednesdays, have we not, learning about what a healthy church member looks like, and I pray that many of you took those points, took those marks, and you now are applying them to your own lives. Mark Dever once said, or he said in his book, uh, uh, I forgot the name, but he said, we are living in an anti-polity age. We are living in an anti-polity age, perhaps more than any other time in church history. Mind you, human beings have not been fans of any authority but their own since the fall in Genesis 3. Nonetheless, this idea of government being bad has not kept itself from creeping into the church. Part of the reason why many Christians don't like government is because they've seen and also been victims of authority who abuse their power. Many of you are victims of being a part of churches where the pastors or elders abuse their power. As a result, the whole idea of government Church government either doesn't sit right with Christians or they are totally disinterested in learning about their own church polity or church polity in general. Now, when I say church polity, this is another word for church government. I'm going to be using those words, those two words interchangeably. Okay? so when I say church polity, I mean church government. When I say church government, I mean church polity. But in fact, the church... In fact, church government, that many will say now, is relative from church to church. So whatever the congregation wants as their type of church government, then that's the type of form of church government the church will have. Some say, also say that there is no New Testament model for how the church should govern itself. What we see now in popular Christianity, and when I say popular Christianity, what I mean by that is the Christianity that you see on television... The Christianity that you see at your Target or Walmart bookstores, popular Christianity, is no longer, our churches are, are no longer being defined by the type of church government or denomination that they have. Rather, people define themselves by what tribes they're in. So instead of being defined in the old days by what church government your church had or what denomination you're a part of, People are being defined by what tribes they're in. Instead of churches being defined as having a Baptist church polity or a Presbyterian church polity, people are defined by the tone of their preachers, the style of their church's music, and the general attire of their church. What used to separate one church from the other, what used to separate one member, one church member from the next church member, namely church government, and the ordinances or sacraments are not issues that people want to divide over nowadays. Now, those are the things that our grandmothers and grandpas used to divide over church government and, and baptism and the Lord's Supper. But the area of church government, your average church member either doesn't know about it or simply doesn't care. Friends, what happened to the doctrine of church government? What happened to the doctrine of church government? In our brand new series, we want to examine and we want to recover what biblical church government looks like. We examined for the past weeks on what a healthy church member looks like. But now we want to recover what a biblical church government looks like, what a God glorifying church government looks like. So I have a question for you. Suppose someone came up to you and they asked you, what type of church government does your church hold to? Suppose someone came up to you and they asked you, you go to Reformation Bible Church. You guys are a Baptist church. You guys are a Reformed church, confessional church. But what type of church government do you guys hold to? What would you say? The doctrine... Of the church is often neglected, because many say, "Well, the church is simply the church." Church government? Well, that's—I don't know how we do it. You know, uh, some, somebody's in charge, but I just don't know who. You know, there's not much to either the doctrine of the church or church government itself. So, the doctrine of, a chur- of the church itself takes the back seat to more important doctrinal issues. Such as in times, when Jesus is coming back, right? Speaking in tongues, prophecy. You know, if we did a conference on speaking in tongues and prophecy, everybody would come. We did a, we did a conference on church government and ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. I'm pretty sure nobody would come. Or baptism. Who should be baptized? Believers only? Or should we baptize infants? As a result... As a result, church government is not something that's on the forefront of people's theological studies. How many of you have ever even studied the doctrine of church government by a hand hand raise. Okay, good. Right. Mark, come on now. Uh, (laughs) But the doctrine of church government is neglected and people often forsake it. And it's at the, the the backdrop or the background of their theological studies. I'll get to that later. Although the doctrine of church government should be at the forefront of every church member's theological studies. If you are a member of the church, you should know what type of church government, what type of church polity that your church holds to. Okay. So let's define what church government is, okay? Let's define what is church government. And church government, or sometimes called church polity, is that branch of ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, that addresses the organizational structure of the church. That's a long definition. Let me say that one more time. Church government, or church polity, is that branch of ecclesiology, Which is the study of the church that addresses the organizational structure of the church. Okay? Church government speaks to, or you can say this, church government speaks to how the church is run. Okay? What is the order of the church? Okay? What is the structure of the church? Now, there are four basic types of church government. And many of these you're probably going to identify with. There's a pastor or elder-led congregationalists who say that the Bible gives the final authority to the gathered congregation as well as the pastors and elders. And the pastors and elders are leading that congregation. Okay? So that's one form of church government, the, the pastor or elder-led congregationalist, which is... The Bible gives the final authority to the gathered congregation as led by the pastors or elders. There's the elder rule or or pastor rule type of church government, which advocates that the final rule of authority belongs to the elders or to the pastor of the church. Now, many of you have probably grown up in that type of church government where the pastor has the final rule or say. Anyone ever grow up in that type of church government? Well, the pastor has the final rule and say of the church. Mind you, I think that type of church government can be done well. However, I've seen in many cases that it's typically not. Okay, Pastors become big-headed, and what happens is the congregation depends too much on the pastor. And the congregation has no say in matters of the church. It's whatever the pastor says goes. No matter how you feel, no matter if you like it or not. Right. It, it, it actually moves more into. Well, in my past experience, as well as pastors and Pastor John's, it moves more into a dictatorship. OK, rather than a biblical sound church government. There's also the Presbyterian form of church government, which gives the authority to the gatherings of elders over several churches, the Presbytery. And then there's also, which many of you grow up in, the Episcopalian type of church government, which is held by Anglicans, Methodists, Roman Catholics, which gives the authority over to the bishop or pope. Okay? Which gives the authority to the bishop or pope. Now, if you're tracking with me, What is the one word that you see in all of these? It starts with an A. Authority. Who has the authority in the church? Okay? Is it the Pope? Is it a bishop? Is it the Presbytery? Is it the one pastor? Or is it the elders as well as the congregation? Which one is right? Which one is right? Now, with all these different types of church government, we have to ask, well, is church government even necessary? Is it even necessary that that we study or we learn about the doctrine of church government? And and that's the question that we want to answer tonight, that there is a biblical one biblical model that that God has prescribed in his word that the church should follow. That there is a biblical model of church government that God has prescribed in his word that we as the church are to follow. And I'm just going to put my cards out on the deck. It's not the Presbyterian form. It's not the Roman Catholic form. It's not the single pastor led form. But it is the congregation form. Okay. It is the congregation form. But let's ask, does church polity even matter? And yes, Church polity matters because the difference between a local church and a group of Christians is nothing more or less than church polity. What's the difference between a local church and just a group of Christians? Church polity. That's the difference. To argue for church polity is to argue for and hear this, the existence of the local church. To argue for church polity is to argue for the existence of the local church. In simple terms, no polity, no church. No polity, you have no local church. No church government, no local church. And we see that in other areas as well in our lives, do we not? All organizations and or social groups possess some type of government, all of them to be a people or to be a group in any sense whatsoever, whether it be a nation state, whether it be an oil company, whether it be a chess club or, or maybe a, a high school clique. Some criteria exists for distinguishing members from non-members. And that some rule or structure guides the behavior within the group. Right. Any any time we have a group. Or an organizational structure or an organization, there is some type of government that is there. You have it at your jobs. You do it in your house, right? When you, with your kids. We can say that the group's governmental rules is what constitutes a group as a group. Let me hear that. Here. A group con- governmental rules is what forms. It's what makes up a group as a group. Okay? To put it another way, a group with no polity, with no governing structure, is not a group. With, a group with no polity, with no governing structure, is not a group. Friends, all you have is just a bunch of individuals. If there is no government, right? All that is to say this. Every local church has some type of church polity. Some way to constitute itself to maintain a criteria for membership, and to make decisions. Why? Because the church's very existence depends in part on that polity. Those who argue against church polity, many of you who might look at me and give me those fa- those bored faces, you know, you want to go watch um, uh, Trump's speech again or Hillary's defeating speech again, um, let me remind you that if you are disinterested in church polity, then you are and you're saying that you're disinterested in God. Okay? Because church government is God ordained. It's in the Bible. And the, and particularly the type of church government that we practice, I believe is the most God glorifying. Okay? So tonight in our first in our first lesson, I will not be teaching you particularly our form of church government. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Rather, I want to provide an apologetic for the topic of church government as a whole. Okay? And I, and I want to answer one question. Why is church government so important? Why is church government so important? And I have three reasons. Polity establishes the local church. Polity establishes the local church. Polity guards the gospel. What? And who polity guards the gospel? What and who and polity strengthens the church's witness? Polity strengthens the church's witness. So let me go one more time. Polity establishes the local church. Polity guards the gospel. What and who and polity strengthens a church's witness. Did everybody get those points? Great. Okay, so the first point, polity establishes the local church. Friends, like I said earlier, without polity, without church government, a church is not a church. Have any of you ever thought along those lines? You know? Because we always thought the church is just the church. There's, no, there's nothing much to it. We just gather together and that's it. However, if there's no governmental um, structure in the church, then there's no church at all. Polity is what constitutes the local church as the local church, it what makes up, it's it's what forms the local church. To put it another way and a more theological way, and you can write this down, polity provides the connection between the universal church and the visible church. Polity provides the connection, okay, between the universal church and the visible church. Universal church can also be called the invisible church are all the believers who profess faith in Christ alone from every tribe, tongue and nation. That's the invisible church. That's the universal church. All the believers around the world. Okay. the local church, the visible church are those believers coming together. To form a visible church here on earth. Okay. The local church. Are those believers. From the universal or visible church. Coming together. To form a visible church here on earth. For example. Me and a Presbyterian. Right. We both are members. Of the universal church. Okay. There are some Anglicans. Some good Anglicans that me and him are members of the universal church. But let's just stick with Presbyterians. However, in good conscience, I can't be a member of his OPC or his PCA because of my view of baptism and church government. So we are connected universally. However, visibly, we can't be in the same church together. In good conscience. Okay? What unites both of us, what unites me and my Presbyterian brother, is faith in Christ. The essentials of the Christian faith. However, what divides us is baptism and church government. Okay, And I think it's fair to say that the movement from the invisible universal church to the local church is a movement into polity. It's a movement into polity. It is to place individual Christian relationships inside the binding identity and rule structure we call the local church. We can say that the local church here on earth is constituted in two moments, that the local church here on earth is is formed in two moments. First comes the invisible moment when God creates a Christian, a member of the universal church through the preaching of the gospel. Case in point, you, if if you have placed your faith in Christ alone, you are members of the universal church, okay? However, if we're just left at that moment, if we're just left at conversion, and if we're just left at, as being members of the, of the universal church, being members of the invisible church, then the church remains an abstract idea with no public presence. It is not yet what we call visible, if you're just stuck in the invisible church, then you have no public presence here on earth. There's no visible presence. John the Lehman, who's an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, says for the church to be a to be visible on earth. Hear this. A mechanism is necessary for identifying both its individual members and its corporate embodiment, its gatherings. There's, there's a mechanism. That that has to be in place, and that mechanism are the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. When I say ordinance, or when people refer to sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church polity. That mechanism are the ordinances and church polity. Bobby Jameson said, a church is born when, hear this, gospel people form A gospel polity. A church is born when gospel people form a gospel government, a gospel polity. In other words, a local church is created when a group of Christians gather together. Right. Someone explains the gospel. Everyone agrees to it. And they mutually affirm one another's agreement through baptism and the Lord's Supper. You guys know what baptism signifies. One of, the ways, one of the things that it signifies, right? It's you publicly, visibly putting on Christ, right? And the Lord's Supper is you saying publicly that you belong to Christ, right? Because you are partaking of the kingdom sacraments, okay? Or the kingdom ordinance. Baptism and the Lord's Supper publicly identify recognize and affirm members of the invisible universal church. That's why we take baptism and the Lord's Supper so serious, because it identifies who are, who's part of God's invisible universal church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper effectually hear this create something that didn't exist before baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I would even go church membership effectually create something that didn't exist before. Your baptism and you partaking of of the Lord's Supper and you being a member of this church creates something that you never had while being part of the invisible church. Not salvation, you're saved, but a public and local reality. That's what baptism, that's what the Lord's Supper, that's what your church membership creates. A public and local reality A visible reality. The ordinances, says Bobby Jameson, make it possible to point to something and say church rather than pointing to many somethings and saying Christians. Church membership, baptism, the Lord's Supper. Make it possible for us to point to a group of Christians and say that's a church. Rather, if you don't have those things, if you don't have a church polity, then Those are just a bunch of Christians. The ordinances show us, and church membership and church polity show us where a church is, and a church shows us who are members of Christ's universal church, because they have united themselves to a visible local church. You want to say you're a Christian? Join a local church. And friends, that's all done under the umbrella of church polity. All of that is done under the umbrella of church polity. We can also say that the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are the beginning of church polity. It's the first act of governance in the church because it's what forms and what makes up the church. Now, some writers today would argue, and also some Christians would argue, I used to argue this, Many of you used to argue this, that you don't need to join a church, right? Because, you know, I can read theology at my home. I can listen to a preacher via satellite. I can read my Bible when I want to. However, and I can also find the same uh, uh, spirit-led fellowship that the church has through more casual and spontaneous meetings, Right, we can just—I can just call up my church, my, my Christian buddies. We we get a book, we get the Bible, and we we'll just go be in a Starbucks. We'll be good. That we'll be good like that. However, without one joining the local church, how is anyone? How is the world going to identify you as being united to Christ? If you don't join the local church, if you don't unite yourself with with Christ's visible body then how can anyone say that you're a Christian? Sure, you can say that, well, I have faith in Christ alone. However, joining the church is you going public with your faith. Right? It's going public with your faith, just like marriage. Right? Or just like having a a, a girlfriend. You know? You can say that that's your girlfriend, but what that ring does is it's a symbol that you two are being united as one, right? You are, in, in a wedding, you're visibly showing that I belong to her and she belongs to me. Just like with the church. We join a local church, we're saying that we belong to Christ. We are on Christ's team, right? Coming under the authority of pastors and elders and coming under the go- uh, governance of the church visibly shows the world who you belong to. Guys, if you are a member of Reformation Bible Church, if you have come under this type of church polity, you're showing the world who you belong to. You belong to Christ. Friends, if all we did was just meet at this building and pastor came up here, or Antonio, if he wouldn't be a pastor, if Antonio or John or myself came up here and preached the word, without any type of church polity, without any type of church order, then all we would be is just a bunch of Christians. You know, we would not have a church. Church polity establishes a local church, and baptism and the Lord's Supper help publicly identify the members of that local church. Let's just imagine, for instance, that there is no church polity. Just think, if there is no church government, there would be no church discipline, right? There would be no elders, no deacons, no pastors, no Lord's Supper, no baptism, no congregation. You can do all those things. However, all of that is meant to be done in the context of the local church. And without church government, those things do not exist. None of those things exist. So friends, is church government important? Yes. Church polity is is not something that we should neglect because without polity... We have no local church. Church government is the connection between the invisible church and the visible church. Therefore, we can say that church government establishes the local visible church. Let's move on to our second point, which is church polity guards the what and who of the gospel. Church polity guards the what and the who of the gospel. We can also say that Church polity, and this is where we're going to, I'm going to show my cards a little bit on the type of church government that we all hold to. The government that uh, church government that you all have practiced last members meeting. Church government guards the gospel message, guards what the gospel message is and who the gospel believers are. So if you're taking notes, polity guards what the gospel message is and who the gospel believers are. Now, this is glorious. This is very, very glorious. That is to say, church order formally recognizes and marks off the what and the who of the gospel. And in doing so, protects the gospel people. If you have a right church polity, then not only is the gospel being protected, but members of this church, you're being protected as well. And mind you, the greatest protection you're ever going to need in life is against false doctrine and heresy. That is the number one protection that you need in this world is against false gospels. Because we can so easily be deceived. But let's take two examples of this. And where we see Paulity's gospel recognizing and gospel protecting work, we first see in Matthew 16 and let's just turn there. Let's just do a little, a little Bible reading. Let's open up our Bible, Bibles for a moment. Matthew 16. Jesus comes to his disciples, and we see in verse 13, he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And hear Jesus' reply. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Raise your hands if you've heard that passage before. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm not going to go too much in depth with these verses, okay? Because we're going to do that in a few weeks. But essentially... What is Jesus doing? Jesus is confronting the apostles with two questions. Right. He goes to his apostles and he asks them two questions. What is the right confession? Who am I? Right. And which one of you knows it? Who is the right? What is the right confession? And which one of you knows it? Peter. Peter as Peter always does, chimes in and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus at this point has two options, right? He can either rebuke that confession or he can affirm that confession, right? He has two options in that in there. But what does Jesus do? He affirms it. By saying that flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter gave the right answer. And then Christ affirmed both Peter, the confessor, and Peter's words, the confession. Right? And he promised to build his church on confessors confessing the same confession as Peter. Guys, who was here at the last members meeting? You know you did that, right? That's exactly what you did. You were playing the part of Christ. And the potential new members were playing the part of Peter. And them giving their testimony, them giving their gospel presentation, what they are essentially doing is they are confessing who Christ is. Right? And after they were done with their Confession. What do we do? We had two choices as Christ did. We can either affirm their confession, let them in the church, or deny their confession and say, "Nope, that's not a proper proper gospel presentation." That makes sense. And then what Christ does is he gives Peter and the apostles the keys of the kingdom. For binding and loosing, and those keys in hand, they render the same formal affirmation on who and what the gospel is. So when you guys affirmed, when you were at the members meeting, when you affirmed those new or potential new members, what you were doing there is you were exercising the keys of the kingdom. You were you 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 either had you had two choices: you can either bind them or you can loose them. And to God's glory, you affirmed you affirmed them all. You are from them all. <clears throat> and like I said, those, those keys, those keys that Christ gives to Peter and the apostles are passed down to every believer who confesses the right confession. Now, I don't know about you, but that's big. That's important. Every church member possesses the keys to the kingdom. Now, from what we see in Matthew 16, is Jesus is deeply concerned with his church. Mind you, that's the first mention of church in the whole Bible. Jesus is deeply concerned with his church. And why is Jesus so deeply concerned with his church? Because his name is tied up with with those who possess the keys. His name is tied with those who possess the keys. Now, let me just do one more thing. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, just a, probably just one page over. And in verses 18 and 20, we see the same thing. He says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. We heard that before, right? We heard that in Matthew 16, right? Again, I say, and but but Jesus now, now he's going to identify and clarify who has the keys of the kingdom right again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered by my in my name there i am among you what does that mean that means when we gather yes as the local church christ is here but also in the context of the of church discipline The highest authority that one could have, mind you, Christ is in the midst. Christ is in the midst because his name is tied with those keys of binding and loosing. And every church member, if you are a church member in this local congregation, you possess those keys. You possess those keys. What Christ is saying is church members represent him through the keys of binding and loosing a um a church exercises hear this a church exercises when members are future members or potential members are coming to to present their gospel presentation and their testimony a church exercises its own border patrol and at that moment we are to guard Christ's name his message and everyone united to his name So next time when we have potential members come up, you better take that very, very serious. Because we're not just guarding this church, okay? But we have to also guard ourselves. Because just imagine someone come in. We affirm someone, right? And they don't know the gospel. Or they have a bad presentation of the gospel, a distorted view of the gospel. And then what they do is they start sharing that distorted view of the gospel to other church members, what happens then? It becomes a cancer and it spreads. Now you have the church divided on the one thing that we should be united, with, united on in the first place, the gospel. Be very careful, okay? Be very careful at that moment. What does that mean? That means we have to know the gospel. We have to study and know the gospel. But why is God, why is Jesus concerned with who he allows or who we allow in the church because God is utterly, utterly concerned with his own name and reputation. God is concerned with his own name and reputation. That's why it's so important for us to know the gospel and know who we allow in the church. Christ has authorized churches to wield the keys of the kingdom. That means every church member has a responsibility to know the gospel Because Christ has given you the task. He has given you small O the office. He has given you the responsibility of affirming gospel citizens and rejecting gospel citizens. That's not that's for only for me to know the gospel or or Pastor Antonio or Pastor John to know the gospel is not fair to the church. That's just that's not my job, me only to know the gospel or the other elders. Friends, each one of you have a responsibility to know the gospel. Why? Because each one of you, if you're a member of Reformation Bible Church, hold a small O office. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? Isn't that great? Friends, why is church polity so important? Because polity protects churches from heretics and hypocrites. And in doing so, protects the gospel And that's the most, that's the one thing, that's the one thing, the most important thing that a local church can do is protect the gospel. We have to protect the gospel. Because even in the areas that we're living in, an area where we have false gospels being preached all over the place, we have to know what the gospel is. As we see God's visible church on earth. We, as the visible church on earth, are to be an army and create a defense wall against any false gospel that tries to invade the church. And friends, guarding the gospel, like I said, is not my job only as an elder. That's just not, that's just, that's just, that's just not only uh, catered to me or what I am responsible of doing. That's all of your guys' responsibility. And we see that is the pattern of the New Testament, That every believer has a responsibility in guarding the gospel. Let me just give you two quick examples, okay? In Galatians chapter 1, Paul is telling these Galatian believers, you can read it from chapter 1 verses 6 and 9, he's telling these Galatian believers that he's astonished, that he's shocked, that they are so quickly deserting the gospel of grace, he is shocked that they are, they are allowing false gospels to come into their church. In other words, these people in the church of Galatia, these members of the church, they should have known better. They should have known what the gospel is. Because if they'd known what the gospel is, then they wouldn't have allowed these Judaizers to come in and infiltrate their church with heresy. Paul assumes that the churches in Galatia should be able to discern the difference between a true gospel and a false gospel. And if a false gospel is being presented, then they should rebuke it. But mind you, Paul, he doesn't even, he doesn't distance himself from one that could potentially present a false gospel. Because he says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. What does that mean? That means that if I preach to you, if Pastor Antonio or Pastor John preach to you a gospel that's so foreign to what we preached before, the best thing that you can do is kick me out. The best thing that you can do is rebuke me for my own spiritual Uh, well-being. We read also in another example in 1 Corinthians 5, we have a man who's sexually immoral. Okay? And from what we see in 1 Corinthians 5, you can read it from verses 1 through 13 that Paul assumed and he thought that, the, that the, the, the church in Corinth should be able to recognize a life that was morally out of step with the gospel. He says it is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife that's just sick and you are arrogant ought you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you Okay. for though I am absent in the body I am present in spirit and as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing He says in verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 9, verse 10 and 11 and 12 and 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning that sexually, not all, not all well, not, not at all meaning the sexual immoral immoral of this world or, or the greedy of swindlers or idolaters, since they w- w- since then you would not need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexually sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater. Or drunkard. And he names all these all these things. What Paul is doing is he's saying that you guys should recognize what a true Christian life looks like. And what a true Christian life looks like is one that is not caught in sexual immorality. Furthermore, what a church looks like is not people who wink at other people's sin. What a true church looks like are believers who do not tolerate people who are living openly in sin. And Paul says, you need to kick that person out. Not, not because it's mean, because it's good for their soul so that the spirit may move in their lives and that God may open their hearts. He gave them some advice and he gave them a warning to do so, to remove them. However, it was up to the church to take heed To such warning. So, what we see in Galatians and what we see in 1 Corinthians, that Paul was counting on these churches to act authoritatively to protect the gospel and its witness and the lives of the saints. In other words, Paul was expecting them to exercise their polity. Paul was expecting these churches, the church in Corinth and the church in Galatia, to exercise their church polity. Just, as, just like we as elders expect you members to exercise your polity when it's time to. So friends, when we think about what we've been looking or learning about in the past weeks, about what a healthy ch- church member looks like, I can say that I see a lot of fruit from those messages in your guys' lives. After church and before church, Uh, Many of you are talking to one another. Many of you are loving one another. Many of you are truly trying to be a model of what a healthy church member looks like. Many of you are going out of your way to talk to people who you never talked to. However, don't neglect the other responsibility that you have as a church member. Yes, it's to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but also it's to know the gospel in order that you may protect that brother and sister in Christ from false gospels. We got the love thing down right. Now let's get our gospel presentation down right. Sure, you can sure when someone presents to you the gospel, it's one thing to say yes, that's a good gospel presentation. I affirm that. But it's another thing for you to present that gospel presentation. Know the gospel. Know the gospel because friends, your life as well as as well as mine and the rest of your brothers and sisters in Christ's spiritual lives depend on it. Okay. Depend on it. Now, let's look at the last point, which is church polity protects the church's witness. Church polity protects the church's witness. Um, Since every church member's responsibility is to know and protect the gospel, then the church is to be viewed the way God intended it to be. Right. Right. Since every church member's responsibility is to know the gospel and to guard the gospel, then the church is to be viewed the way God intended it to be. A group of believers, a group of believers only who display his character and glory before the entire world. When one looks at the church, when the world looks at the church, what do they see? Sadly, they see the exact image of themselves. The style of music uh, the church place sounds identical to the world. The crazy clothes some church members wear look exactly like the world's. Some of the language that the church uses sounds just like the world's. The things that the preachers preach are nothing more or less than a motivational speech that they can hear Somewhere in the world. The church nowadays wants to identify itself so much with the world. Some churches have even, have even said that they have to have two types of services. One contemporary and one traditional. Friends, there is nowhere in scripture, nowhere in scripture does it say that the church is to be like the world. In fact, the church is meant to be the exact opposite of what the world looks like. When the world looks at the church, they're to see something so foreign, so unlike the world that they live in. That's why we're so weird to the world, right? That's why it's hard for some of us to even hold a conversation with our non-safe friends, right? And friends, that's okay. Okay because God that's how God intended his church to be. The local church is to be, and hear this. If you don't get anything out tonight, hear this. The local church is to be for Christians heaven on earth. What God has and what God has given us in church government, particularly congregationalism, is a foretaste of heaven. What, what God has given us in church polity is to be a foretaste of heaven. We can say that the local church is to be a spiritual fortress to God's people. A place of refuge and safety from the world's vices and influences. You know, Church member, when you come to church Sundays and Wednesdays, and when you interact with your fellow church members, and then when you sit down and when you feast on God's word, and you, when you partake of the Lord's Supper, when you worship Christ in song, mind you, that's something that we all do together. Okay? This and, and, and your own isolation worship, that's not worship. When you come to church, you are corporately worshiping God. We all sing to God. Okay? But when, you, when we worship Christ in song, you are Receiving the closest taste of heaven, you are tasting the closest thing to heaven that you will ever taste, that you will ever receive. When the world sees a local church, they are to see the love that the church members have toward one another is so unlike anything that they have ever encountered. Friends, church is not something that we just say, oh, man, I got to go to church church is the very apex is the very highlight of our week we look forward to feasting on god's word we look forward to being among the saints and lifting our voices to heaven and sadly churches that are influenced by the world hurt its own witness and it hurts our witness as well because they're saying we identify ourselves more with the world than christ we care more about what the world says and how the world views us than what Christ has prescribed in his world, word and how he will judge us. Friends, we have to ask, though, how does this relate to church government? How does our witness, how does our church polity relate to our witness to the world? The answer is this. A good church polity strengthens a church's witness because of the way each church member and its leaders Cares, loves, and protects each other. A good church polity strengthens a church's witness because of the way each member and its leaders cares, loves, and protects each other. A good church polity, a good church, a good church government strengthens a church's witness by who they allow to be baptized and partake of the Lord's Supper. When a good church polity is in place, then the church, hear this, visibly reflects the invisible God whom they serve. When a good church polity, when a God-glorifying polity is in place, then it reflects, the church visibly reflects, the invisible God whom they worship. We are to be that type of model. Each member cares if Sister Susie or Brother Bob knows the gospel, reads the word, is praying daily, is mortifying the flesh, is living a life of daily repentance and fruit-bearing. And friends, a good church polity establishes all of that. Again, though, if you don't care about church government, if you leave here and if you say, ah, that didn't mean anything, then ultimately what you're saying is you don't care who you allow in your church. If you say that you don't care about church government, then you're saying that you don't care who gets baptized and who partakes of the Lord's Supper. Both, we believe, are reserved for believers only. The, people, the Only the kingdom people receive the kingdom ordinances, right? If you don't care about church government, then ultimately what you're saying is you don't care about the gospel. Because part of, the, part of what helps preserve the gospel from one generation to another from one generation to the next is church polity. Is church polity. Church members who are here and non-church members, you should care about church polity. You should care about what your local church looks like. Friends, we are living in darkness, are we not? Mind you, the world has been living in darkness since Genesis 3. You know, um, we are living in difficult times, but it's not some new development. We've been living a difficult time since Genesis 3. However, God is so good. God is so glorious. He is so grand. He has decreed everything. He is establishing and setting up churches that would be lights for his people all across the world. And good church polity only helps brighten that light even more. So in conclusion, does church polity matter? Yes. Yes. It matters because it establishes a local church. It matters because it guards the gospel and the people of the gospel. And it matters because it strengthens a church's witness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful time. Uh, I pray that that made sense. I pray that your people were blessed and edified by that. And they start taking seriously the type of church government that their particular church holds to, which is congregationalism. Lord, thank you for this wonderful time, and Holy Spirit, help us, guide us in all truth. In your name we pray. Amen.